This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. As I said last week, every week I'm going to open these with announcing another person that's going to be with us at Retro World Expo, and this week is Greg from LaserBear. Greg is going to have a booth and set up some 3D printers so that you could come and see the OG retro creator of 3D printed awesomeness right there at work, as well as, of course, buy a whole bunch of stuff that's going to be pre-printed and waiting to sell when you get there. So definitely check out the links, check out Retro World Expo. There's going to be so many awesome people there, and I really hope to meet as many of you there as possible last week of August this year, so just a few months away. But anyway, let's jump in and see what's been going on in the past week. First up, a prototype of Marble Madness 2 was found and dumped online, and if you want a really great in-depth story, Kyle Orland from ARS Technica really dove in and had a a great write-up on it. I'm going to give the short version here, both because I don't want to take away from Kyle's post and because I just try to summarize things in these, but basically the original game Marble Madness was a stand-up arcade cab with a trackball that controlled the marble, which of course makes sense because you're essentially spinning a marble around. However, none of the home ports, at least none of the ones I know of, had support for that unless you tried to use a workaround in the Sega trackball or something like I've done a few times, but basically anybody who grew up with these games, including all the way into the Game Boy Advance era, was playing it with a D-pad. And while I truly think that if the company had thought to do something like bundle a trackball controller in and then make sequels that use the same controller, I think that would have been a game changer, but there was no way to tell that back in the 80s and 90s. So what ended up happening was they came up with Marble Madness 2, the sequel, and since so many people had been playing the original with a D-pad they weren't able to adjust to the trackball controls. Plus, there was a few other things about it that they didn't quite like. So then the company went back and redid it with just an arcade stick control instead of a trackball, but it never really picked up and the game kind of fell off. And now it's been found, and David Haywood, Mame Hayes, was able to hack it into MAME in order to get it working so that you could all try it out. Uh, And all of the links that you need for everything are below, but the story is much cooler than my summary here, so please check out Kyle's post, as well as all of David's work, um, including a live stream that he did so that you could see it in action if you just want to see what the game is like. And if you want to learn more about uh, David Haywood and all of the craziness that goes on behind the scenes in the MAME world, please check out the interview we did. And at some point, I would really love to go back and interview a a whole bunch of other people that have been working on MAME all the years. I just, uh, not enough time in the day, and I really want to get to everybody because there's so many amazing people out there that I would love to make sure we all know who they are. But anyway, if you're into Marble Madness 2, or Marble Madness original at all, even a little bit, check out this sequel because even if you don't end up downloading it and playing it, at least you could check out the video and see what it looks like. 
This week's podcast is sponsored by JLC PCB, and here is the follow-up to the whole beveled edge hard gold for your video game cartridge section. A while back, I had posted a video thinking I got it right, and that was the mistake that I apologized for a few weeks ago, but it turns out that there was a few things that were needed. First of all, in order to make beveled edges, the PCB has to be a minimum size. So rather than make single cartridge PCBs, you have to make them on a panel like this so you have multiple with each. Now, this is super easy to work with and you don't have to worry about messing up production because these things snap right apart and then they essentially just turn into that original cartridge that you had cartridge PCB that you had made. But in order to do this, you just need to modify your design to have everything panelized in one spot like this. Then just go to JLC PCB, add your Gerber file scroll down and then select the options for Enig, then hard gold, and then 45 degree beveled and chamfered. Now it's very, very hard to tell the difference between beveled edges and not. It's kind of easier to check chamfered. So I'll show visual examples, but if you're watching on a phone or if you have a bad connection, they might look exactly the same. So I'll try to post a picture somewhere as well. But basically you just want to make sure that the edge of that PCB is angled both on the front, which is the bevel, and on the sides, which is the chamfer. Otherwise, as you're inserting it into your cartridge slot, it'll smash up against the pins and wear them out a lot faster. So having them beveled and chamfered allows it to slide in much easier, less damage and wear and tear on the pins on the inside, and it is absolutely, should be a requirement for all cartridge-based games. So for more info, definitely check out jlcpcb.com and any of the other ads. And at least now you know, if you want to make yourself a game cartridge PCB from JLC PCB, it's pretty easy. You just have to make sure to modify the design so it makes the minimum width so that their machine can do the beveling and chamfering properly. So there's yet another MVS in an AES style case that's been released that has a bunch of good things about it. There's some room for improvement, but it does have the most official looking case I've ever seen for one of these conversions. And while it's not perfect, I definitely think it's worth people's time to at least hear about. So I'm going to go through what I found pretty quickly. Um, so this was sold from the Time Harvest store and Modsville USA let me borrow it months ago and I forgot to do a write-up. I'm sorry, I'm the worst with that stuff. Uh, but the first thing that you'll notice about it is it's gorgeous. It looks just like an AES. Um, and this, of course, just very quickly for people that might not understand why this matters. If you are somebody who original games matters a lot to you, you can get MVS versions of Neo Geo games for infinitely cheaper in many cases than the AES variants, and they're essentially the same exact game. So that's why many people over the years have looked to super guns or consoleized solutions in order to play their MVS games. And of course, if you have you know, a, a monitor and an arcade setup, you'd want to be able to use them on both and stuff like this is the easiest way to do it. So the case is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, there are USB ports in the front, so you could use both the DB15 port, uh, Neo Geo style controllers, as well as just standard USB. More on that later. Um, and it supports pretty much every output you could want from 15 kilohertz. It's got RGB, S-video, component video, composite video, and then stereo left and right audio. So right off the bat, 
there's nothing wrong with this. So if you love the case and you say, oh, wow, I have five different monitors that use all of those inputs, and I, I would love something that I could play Neo Geo across multiple different inputs like this, then this is probably for you. It's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly safe. But there were a few things I noticed about it. First of all, uh, on the good side, they used an MV1B motherboard, which were the two-piece designs, that they were able to take apart, use a flex cable, and mate them back together in order to fit it in this case, which is really awesome, except that's a lot of work, and I do think that this might have been a little bit easier to manage if they had just used an MV1C, because then you could just sell it as a kit, because the only thing you'd have to do is snip off the heatsink for audio, which you wouldn't use onboard audio anyway. You would tap the circuit for left and right. So this kind of immediately limits this to being something that's not a real do-it-yourselfer unless you really know what you're doing because you don't want to end up ruining the board with stuff like this. Uh, but it still is an impressive design and it's very cool. There's also one giant board that wraps around it and then a bunch of little bodge circuits that attach to it. And I think the reason for this is because the original creator must have made a bunch of these circuits, sent them off to manufacturing, and then attaches these to all of the boards that they use, which from a, a stock and manufacturing point of view makes sense, because that way if one product you have sells a lot and the other one undersells, you don't waste chips, you just mate them on whenever you need to. But I do like to see clean designs where you don't have to worry about stuff like this. Um, for the performance itself, Component video is a little too dark, but you could just turn up your brightness if you're playing on a CRT. That's not really that much of a big deal. However, RGB is a bit too bright. Not nearly the level that could cause any damage at all, not even close, but it is starting to approach the level in which the colors might wash out a little bit, even if you turn the brightness down. And on top of that, when I went through the scope plots, blue was higher than the other two, which means that the color blending will never be quite right. So while this was not bad, at all. It will never look as good as the OpenMVS in a properly installed machine. Whether that matters to you or not, it's totally up to you. I know a lot of people who have a scenario in which having all of those output options would be way better of an option for them than just having RGB only with the cleanest output. So there's definitely room for both in this market. And you know, this takes care of the output options part. Uh, composite video looked fine. I didn't test it too much and I, I should have, but this is a personal opinion and I shouldn't have let crossover into this review, but I just, for me, Neo Geo has always been an arcade platform. And even though I, you know, I've owned AES versions later in life, could never afford that as a kid. It just never felt right in composite. It's not like Genesis and Super Nintendo, where sometimes you have graphics that are beautifully designed on composite video, or like most of the early 3D graphics. This is something that I always felt really shined in the arcade world. So composite looked fine. And it's more than safe to use. The voltages were perfect. So uh, I can confirm that much at least. And I forgot to test this video at all. I'm sorry. I think I plugged it in, verified it worked, and then forgot to run any of the tests. My bad on that one. But I can't imagine it's unsafe considering that the other ones are perfect and these are all being generated on the same circuits. The only other thing I didn't want to test yet was the USB controller option, because that's a lot of work to be able to set that up, and I wasn't even sure what circuit they were using. However, I did end up getting in touch uh, 
through other people with the original designer and they were open to suggestions. Uh, they said they were looking into MV1C options for it, but it would have to be a different front connector for it all to line up. So they were thinking of different creative ways of doing that. My personal opinion, if you had to take like an FFC connector, you know, like a, a PCB with the metal on the ends and solder that to the JAMA connector, that's something I would say most people with some patience could handle. Whereas those flex cables on the back, those ribbon cables connecting those two boards together for the MV1Bs, I don't think that's a beginner thing at all. I could be wrong. I'm always open to opinions, but I think if they came out with an MV1C version, even if you did have to solder it, it would be so amazing that most people wouldn't even care because it just looks like an AES. Um, I also would love to see the OpenMVS circuits routed into that. So maybe potentially they will consider a version with everything integrated into that one big awesome looking board. And then you add your own MV1C making this an at-home do-it-yourself solution. I think that would be pretty cool. They were also looking into open source USB to DB15 circuits. Um, I'm going to double and triple check the ones that are out there as well as their open source licensing because the OpenMVS is basically anybody could use it. Uh, it would be very nice if you shouted out the original team that made it and not just try to pretend that you made it and sell it through another company. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. So hopefully this there could be a version of that where we could just buy it add our own MV1C and have that super clean RGB circuit. Uh, so I'm excited to, to see where this goes. If you want some more info on it, Modville US, they had the video. Uh, I'm also uh, really happy that the creator of this was willing to have a chat with me and entertain different ideas. They seemed very cool and didn't seem offended by any suggestions. They seemed like nerds like us who just, you know, want to see what options we could do and get and get better with and um, so I'm looking forward to see where this goes and what other options we could have in the future. So thank you very much to Modville USA, to the creator of this project, um, and to everybody else that contributes in this, especially on the open source side, because it's really cool to be able to finally see reasonably priced Neo Geo stuff out there that actually performs in a level that justifies the price. So I think this was like 400 bucks ish for one of these. Um, and I have links to everything right there, but this is a, definitely a cool thing. And hopefully we could see a bunch more projects merge together to make this happen and have people start working together to, to just get more of this stuff out to people. There is now a new version of the 240p test suite for Dreamcast that has a ton of updates and additions to it. I'll run through some of my favorites here, but please check out the Patreon post for all of the details. And all of their Patreon posts are public, so you could feel free to read it if you're supporting or not. But if you use the test suite, especially if you use it as much as I do, please consider supporting that team. But anyway, some of the additions that I think are pretty awesome are a full controller test, so you could test controllers and VMUs. Keith Rainey's monoscope pattern is on here as well, so it'll help for calibrating CRTs, especially in 480p using the Dreamcast's weird signal. That might be a help to quite a few people. There are color calibration tests that might help for 480p as well. Uh, there is an audio sync test that allow streamers to sync up the audio and video from their Dreamcast a little bit better, which is always a struggle for both streaming and capture setups and stuff like that. But things like this are always a massive help. Um, the, the new Donna 
uh, Flickr test has been added. The Jose Solos, um, awesome artwork. I always like that. It's based on the Bill Gates thing. Check out all the pictures on Twitter. That's very cool. And of course, MD Fourier analysis, which is awesome because that will not only help you test Dreamcasts, so that will allow emulation creators to help be a little more accurate, but you could also use it to test Dreamcast cables those really shitty HDMI adapters. Now there's more proof of how bad some of those actually are. Some of them aren't terrible, by the way, but some of them are terrible. So <laughs> careful with those. Now you have more proof to show people who won't believe you anyway. Um, and it, really, it's just absolutely the test suite for any console that it's been released for. I know I talk about it all the time, and while I'm joking, I'm also very serious in that I have used the 240p test suite more than every other game combined on every game console that's in this room in the past five or so years. Probably more than that, actually. So if you need test tools of any kind for your consoles, this is the one that you want to check out. Hopefully it's available on your platforms, uh, and definitely consider supporting the team because... Uh, this is just such a help and I'd love to see it on everything just because of, you know, how useful all of these tools are. But please check out the main post for the ton of updates that I just kind of skimmed over. And speaking of the Dreamcast 240p test suite, you could now pre-order a physical version of it from Video Games New York for $25. This is the latest version of the software, or I guess if there's any bug fixes in the next couple of weeks, it'll probably be that version of the software. But this is going to be professionally made and have all artwork to make it look official and everything, and it just seems pretty cool. I ordered two, one for me and one for a friend of mine, because you got to spread the uh, 240 test suite love here, but it's very cool. I I've had an original version of the Genesis 240p test suite that Artemio made me a long time ago that has been my go-to forever. And in fact, I had Jose flash the ROMs on it for me a couple, like a year ago to get the latest version with MD Fourier on there. And I use that cart so much. So I can imagine anytime I have a Dreamcast in front of me that has a working CD drive, this is what I would use in order to fire up the test suite. Uh, professionally made discs are always going to be better to, for your CD lasers to read. It's always a little bit easier and they age better. So this isn't just, you know, something cool to own. This is actually a, I would consider this another tool in your toolbox that happens to look pretty. So if you're a Dreamcast user that relies on the 240p test suite a lot, this might be a pretty cool thing to purchase and it's reasonably priced. So check all the links and uh, the description for any more details. The musician Remute has just opened pre-orders on his Game Boy Advance-based album called Unity, which should be released on August 5th this year. You could pre-order the cartridge or a special edition with vinyl as well. And much like all of the other cartridge-based Remute releases, this will have audio generated by the console. So this isn't like an MP3 player in a cartridge, which is neat too, but this is programmed to run on a GBA and have the console itself generate the sound, just like all of the other cartridge releases, which is really awesome because now you're working with the constraints of that console to bring out the best sound that you could get from it, which is exactly what Remute's done on other platforms. And I'm really looking forward to hearing how this is going to sound, especially because GBA has been notorious for low quality audio. So I'd be willing to bet Dennis would use that to his advantage and use some of the weird effects and stuff in order to make the music kind of flow in a very unique way. So I'm 
I've already pre-ordered the special edition. I, I own all of Remute's albums, and or at least the ones on that have been released on cartridge. And uh, I think this one's going to be pretty cool. So uh, it should be €35 Euro plus shipping for the cartridge edition with a digital copy as well, and 45 for the one with the vinyl. Um, and once again, it should be released in August of this year. So if you're a fan of very awesome music, that's uh, created by the consoles itself. Definitely check this out. And if you'd like to learn more about Remute, uh, his history, and the plan for this year on how many different uh, things that he could release music on, I would strongly recommend listening to the interview where I basically just fanboyed out the whole time. I'm all right with it, though. I had a great time. So pre-orders are open. Pick up yours now. A new project was just released on GitHub that allows you to make a homebrew PlayStation 1 memory card solution for the purpose of transferring save files and running the free PSX boot exploit in order to allow you to boot CDRs on different versions of PlayStation 1. And the project is really cost focused because you could pull this off for an extremely low price and you could even choose to either repurpose an old memory card you have lying around or have a PCB made and then solder a Raspberry Pi Pico onto it. So while this obviously is not a replacement for the Memcard Pro, this would be a good alternative for people that just want to transfer all their saves off of their PS1 memory cards and get them onto a PC for use on emulation, Mr. whatever else. Or, of course, for people that want a neat way of running Homebrew on an original PS1, which is something that I'd like to mess with, and I think this would be a pretty neat way to do it. Um, but overall, I mean, this is absolutely a project that I love. You know, it's right up on GitHub for anybody to make themselves. It's extremely useful. And it kind of just helps support everything else that's out there. Because if you're somebody that wants multiple memory banks and a cool looking memory card that you could bring to any PlayStation 1 and, and transfer stuff back and forth, then of course the MemCard Pro is for you. There's even that really awesome laser bear case that I loved for it. But if you're just somebody that wants a tool, so you want to use this once or twice, you want to get your save files off, you want to just leave it plugged in to load backups, this would make more sense. And obviously, no disrespect to the Memcard Pro team, they probably would agree, if you're only going to use something once or twice, build the cheap version, don't get the fancy version. Um, so I think this is great. This is a project that anybody can make themselves. It has a place in the market. I don't really think it butts heads with anything. I think all of this stuff can uh, is just awesome and complement each other very nicely. So if you want more details on how to make your own, some, some more... Uh, updates on the functionality, definitely check out Lewis's post. And hopefully I could pick up one of these um, to, to make just to kind of try out myself because I do think tools like this are very handy. But, um, you know, like I said, if you're, if you're looking for a fancy memory card that does everything you need to do, Memcard Pro is probably going to be the better choice. But this looks like an amazing tool that I'm definitely going to try to make. Todd from Retrofrog has just released a vertical stand for your original PlayStation 1s. And it was pretty funny because when I first saw the stand, the first thing I thought of was how many friends over the years had to use their PlayStation 1 propped up on its side or upside down in order for the laser to read. And I thought at first that this might have been what that was for. And in fact, Ronnie even mentioned in his post that that's how he had to use an older PlayStation 1 as well for a while. 
But this is really designed for people with optical drive emulators who just want to orient their consoles in a way where you could fit more on a taller shelf, I guess. So I think it's a pretty cool design. It's also oriented so that you put the power supply up because obviously hot air rises and these things could get hotter with all of the stuff that we install in it. So having the power supply oriented on the top to vent out was a great idea as well. Um, the also, when this goes in, it kind of locks in place and you have to uh, kind of, you know, pry it out in order to get it off. I'm probably describing that wrong, but the point of me saying that is that don't worry, you're not going to put your PlayStation in and have it flop out on you at some point. Um, this is a sturdy stand that's meant to have everything snap into place. And also it allows access to the rear with everything as well. So it's not going to cover up your HDMI port or, you know, or anything else. So basically, if you were looking for a way to vertically orient your PlayStation 1, then this is the solution for you available right at RetroFrog. So thanks very much to Ronnie for writing this up. And thanks to Todd for continuing to make this weird stuff that... A lot of the stuff that comes out of RetroFrog is stuff that we probably didn't know that we wanted until it was released. So keep it up, Todd. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Good shit. Wobbling Pixels has just released a video on the best settings for PlayStation 1 games on your RetroTINK 5X. And both Wobbling Pixels and myself and Mike Chi always like to open these things up by saying, you don't need any of this. If you want to use your PlayStation 1 or PlayStation 1 through your PlayStation 2 on your RetroTINK 5X, plug it in, set the input, start playing, that's it. This is for crazy people like me that want to tune in the sharpest settings possible and try to get the most out of the scaler, the console, and your TV. And Wobbling Pixels absolutely has you covered once again for that. He goes over PlayStation 1 games on both PS1 and PS2, because there's slightly different settings if you want to tweak those. Of course, NTSC and PAL. But he also takes a moment to go through the CRT Simulate scan lines for interlaced games, which is something that I think is awesome. And depending on your display and your preference, it might be the best way to experience some of those games, not all of them. But there's different scan line options. There's the 240p Simulate ones for 480i games, and Wobbling Pixels go through all of it, as well as how to check what resolution's running on the game, how to match those up. This uh, this really is like a great in-depth dive for people who are into the PS1 and own a RetroTINK 5X. So the only other thing to note is whenever you're going through a scaler, the better cable you use, the better overall experience. It's not quite like on a CRT where for these early 3D graphics games using composite video might 
actually look better in some cases. So I would just recommend starting out with uh, S-Video composite, I'm sorry, S-Video or RGB, and then component video if you're going through PlayStation 2. Basically, when you're on a PS2, component and RGB are exactly the same. There's been some debate about that over the years that has all been squashed as a myth. But when you're running PlayStation 1, you don't have component video options unless you're using HD Retrovision. So stick with S-Video or RGB. But the Tink 5X supports all of those. So if you have only a composite video to start, start with that, get another cable at some other point and kind of go from there. But anyway, links to everything, including some of Wobbling Pixels, other videos about getting your best settings are right here in this post. Uh, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing other videos in the future because a lot of deep dive work went into this that clarified a bunch of stuff for people. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to skim through these, and if you want any details or if anything I talk about piques your interest, please check out Lou's posts and, of course, his video and subscribe to his YouTube channel. But starting out, there was an Attract Mode script that we talked about a few weeks ago, and apparently there's another one out as well. So you could choose from either one that would basically load up random games so that Kind of like a screensaver, so you don't have to worry about CRT burning, but also because it's kind of neat. You know, if you have a game room and a bunch of people over, I imagine it's pretty awesome to have some of these games just cycling through in the background. So check those out if you're interested. Also, Mike Simone has completed his goal of adding native S-Video support to over 100 cores for the Mister. So there's still some discussions on how this is all going to work itself out, but I am very much looking forward to continuing my testing on it. I'm going to be doing it all live just because I think it's easier that way, and I like trying to find ways to show people what goes on behind the scenes. But I have Retro Access making me a custom S-Video cable so I can go back and retest uh, Porks, you know, the Mister add-ons design as well as this one, uh, I'm really going to just do my best to get the best quality captures out of this so we can figure out what's going to be the best solution for your setup. I also ordered a new old stock S-Video cable that was a brand I used back in the day, so I won't be, you know, wiring things together like I did last time. So uh, hopefully uh, I will be able to get testing maybe another week or so. I have a couple more boards coming, and if anybody out there has a specific solution, let me know now, because I want to get them all together for the next and maybe last live stream on us, because maybe by the time the stream's over, we would have decided on whatever is going to be a good solution moving forward. There's also a bunch of updates to the cave core, including flipping analog video or inverting the screen, which is great for people using CRTs that are rotated. I still haven't rotated my CRT yet. That's a project I got to start getting to right away. But um, definitely one of the first things I'm going to be playing when I do are any of the cave games that are working. There's also a possible MB6885 core. The developer Pierco, who was also the developer of the game in Watch Core, was looking into working on it. So I've never really had any experience with that computer, but if you're a fan of it, that's something to potentially get excited about. There also aren't going to be major updates to the PlayStation Core for a while, at least from Robert, because he injured his hand a while back and it's going to be out of commission for a little while. But after accomplishing that, if anybody ever deserved a break, it's certainly Robert. However, since it's an open source project, anybody is still willing, who's willing to contribute could still make some changes. Um, and Paul and B, Paul BNL, I'm sorry, Paul, I always get your screen name wrong, but already made some direct video fixes and there's already an unstable build if you want to check those out. So there should still be progress on it, just no huge updates coming from Robert like we've seen in the past. 
Also, the Game & Watch Core has been officially released, so in order to get it, just update your mister and go find some Game & Watch files. So that's pretty cool. I want to try that out just for the heck of it. Um, I'm never a huge fan of those little games, but I appreciate them for what they are, so I'd love to give that a try for a bit. And also, Hotego released the beta for his Pangcore to Patreon subscribers. So if you are a subscriber, you just need to use the update all script and then enter your info in and stuff like that. And if you're not a sub uh, supporter of Hotego on Patreon, all of this stuff is eventually for free when it's made public and a little, little more stable. So that's about it for this week. A um, lot of exciting stuff going on behind the scenes, so thank you so much to Lou for taking the time to make all of this easier to follow. Uh, and like I said at the beginning, please make sure to subscribe to his channel for any major updates. And also, uh, I saw Lou posted like a monthly roundup video that kind of just summed things up for people that weren't really keeping up with the week to week. So uh, if you're into that too, if you don't have time to listen to these weekly, definitely just check that one out and get a summary of everything that happened this month in Mister. I just posted an interview with my friend and professional gamer Arturo, aka Sabin, and we originally live-streamed it on Twitch on his channel. There were some issues with it, so when we were done, I stitched it together, hopefully kind of seamlessly so you don't notice the issues, and also released it as a podcast. So check it out if you want a video on either one of our channels, or if you like audio only, listen wherever it is that you find audio podcasts. But Stuff like this is exactly why I'm so happy I stuck to doing one of these long-form podcasts a week, because the chat that you heard is exactly what it's like when Art and I hang out together, although I definitely swear more when I'm not on camera. But other than that, it, this is the same type of nerdversation that we've been having for years now, and I am I just really think that a lot of people would dig hanging out with us like this and kind of listening to all of the research we've done, all of the testing, and we really dug into lag and capture and a bunch of the other crazy stuff that we always talk about. So this is the type of stuff where th there was one time that there was a bunch of people over my apartment. It was art, tech, crews, and we were all just hanging out, talking shop, and at the end of the night, art kind of came up to me and he's like, you know, you totally should have just flipped on a microphone and recorded that, right? I'm like, yeah, crap, totally. That would have been an amazing podcast. So that's basically what I'll be doing a lot more of. And I don't want to stop even weeks where I'm so busy. I really want to just make time to have a chat with somebody because so much fun stuff comes out of this, whether it's just shooting the shit and hanging out or stuff like this. That's a mix of both with a bunch of awesome tech info in there. So thanks very much to Art for doing this. Um, you know, I'm going to try to to spend more time promoting a lot of the stuff that he's done. Just once again, it's the same excuse I always use that I just don't have enough time. Art a few months ago did a video on how he runs his whole setup that I thought was brilliant. I thought so many people would benefit but watching that video and seeing what he does, and I just had no time to write it up. So luckily there's more contributors now, so that's going to happen less and less, but there's going to you'll be seeing a lot more art on Retro RGB and please check out the uh the video and if you want to see the original one, I posted a link to that in the main post as well. Back when I used to include interviews at the end of the weeklies, still not sure why I thought that was a good idea, but it's there if you want to see how everything has progressed in the past five years of stuff. But thanks again to Art for doing it, and hopefully you all enjoyed it. The Sega Saturn Shiro crew just interviewed Kenji Tosaki, who was the peripheral designer for Sega in the 90s. 
And this is going to be really hard for me to talk about because this was an awesome interview and I would love to discuss every one of these answers and the tech that went into it. So I'm going to do the opposite and just kind of go over some notable points, hoping that it will push you to read Dave's post because this was awesome. This was so cool for anybody who's a fan of Sega stuff. And I couldn't think of a better crew to do this interview, but... There were a few things that really stood out to me, one of which was the Saturn light gun was in such high demand because Virtua Cop was so cool that they actually had to design a second circuit board for it because they couldn't get the parts for the first one, which I wanted to say that because that probably resonates with any circuit board designer today who's dealing with a part shortage. Uh, but basically, if you open up the Saturn gun, there are you might find two different designs that perform identically, which was really hard to pull off with different parts in there. And also, apparently, you could add old dead AA batteries to the barrel of that to have it weighted more to feel more like a real like a real gun. I thought that was kind of neat too. Um, also, and of course, the the main title. Kenji talked about the Virtua Visor, which was Sega trying to do their own version of, at the time, the name didn't even exist, but basically augmented reality. And that was pretty interesting to see as well. Also, uh, there were some questions discussed, like how come the 3D control pad is compatible with games that were released before the 3D pad was made, and a bunch of different thoughts on 3D controllers and possible rumble support, um, turning the 3D controller into a weird light gun itself. There's a bunch of really cool things discussed. And a lot of it echoes back to the questions many of us had when we found out that there were going to be a lot of peripherals originally designed for the 3D control pad that were never released. So honestly, if you're a fan of of Sega stuff, even a little bit, take the time to read this post. I was absolutely sucked in. I read every word. And then as soon as I finished, I was like, how the hell am I going to talk about this in the podcast? I could talk to Dave for like an hour and a half about just this post alone. So I'm going to leave it at that. Just an interest of everybody's time, but definitely check this one out. This was very cool. Tino from Macho Nacho Productions posted a video about the Gamebox Systems Game Boy Advance Consolizer, which is just another choice for being able to play Game Boy Advance and then, of course, Game Boy and Game Boy Color games on a flat panel TV. This kit is now selling for about 300 bucks completed, so you could just go on the Gamebox website and have it delivered right to you for 300 Hopefully, they'll be able to keep up with demand. And the output options are definitely respectable. They're probably not going to be the best option we ever see for Game Boy Advance, but I think it hits a perfect middle ground of availability, and it looks like good performance. Uh, I think most people would probably want to use the 480p or 720p modes. I, I have very, very few scenarios in which 1080i would be the right choice unless maybe you have something like an old HD CRT or something like that. But there's definitely different scaling modes. There's some pixel smoothing modes, which I'm never a fan of with 2D graphics, but they're there if you need them. And, you know, it's always good to have options. Gamma correction, SNES controllers, different scan line options, um, and it's powered by USB-C. So if you want more details on this, definitely check out Tito's video because it all goes into all of the detail that you would expect. Um, There's a really awesome post that Tito wrote here as well. So if you prefer to read instead, all the info you need is here. But basically, we're getting more options for Game Boy Advance now, which is really a good thing. And 
On top of that, there is still the part shortage, which is killing a lot of these projects, slowing them down, it's making them more costly. There's the open source do-it-yourself option that really isn't saving you any money and you have to do it yourself at the moment. But what I would really love to see is once the part shortage starts to drop off a little bit, I would love to see Tito swing back around and do a comparison of all of these different ones, including the ones that you have to make yourself, just because I think that there's a lot of potential for all of them. And I think once the chips get back down to a more reasonable level, we could take a, a different look at what these are, how to use them, and you know which one you think is for you based on price and features. But now you have another option that seems very good, uh, and I will be getting one to test the latency at some point. My guess is zero. My guess is there's pretty much zero latency in it because of how it's made and how it's designed, but I'm going to wait until I test it. I'll, I might not even do a video. I might live stream testing it and then write a post about it, but the way this is designed, there isn't a separate scaler built in like the thing that Intech Gaming glues into all of their crap. Uh, it's all done through FPGA, so it should be zero, but I will test as soon as it arrives and make a post about it. But I would strongly recommend just starting with Tito's post and video and going from there because this looks like a very cool option. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to people who support in any way possible. The monthly support services are what keep this alive, but just simply clicking on affiliate links, especially those general links where you buy whatever you were going to buy anyway for the same exact price, but we get a couple pennies. All of that stuff is what's keeping us going. And also, thank you for the shoutouts. Some of the bigger channels that have been helping RetroRGB have really been what the other part of what keeps this all afloat. So if you want to do a video or any work on anything that we've covered, and especially projects that I've worked on personally, personally, just reach out. I probably have B-roll that I could give you. Um, you know, I'll, I'm always willing to help share and help other people out because it's just very cool to see larger channels throw props this way rather than just take work, pretend it's theirs and, and pretend like I never had anything to do with it. Uh, the bigger channels that help are, are a big deal. So if you're one of those channels, even if you've accidentally stolen in the past, that's cool. It probably wasn't your fault anyway. You probably just Googled and found the solution, but reach out. If you have any questions, if you need any help, if you just want B-roll, just ask. I'm always willing to help. Just put a little shout out to RetroRGB at the bottom. So hopefully more people will be sent this way. But anyway, thanks for everything and I'll see you next week.